There's a purpose in the press. I was sitting at the dinner table with my family one night, about four weeks ago. Kids are all there, wife's there, and we're just enjoying a meal together. The moments leading up to that dinner, however, had been quite crazy. In fact, you know what I'm talking about. Four weeks ago, we were all like in like this whole snow, crazy snowstorm thing, right? And it was, it was just, it was absolutely crazy. The things that uh, I found myself doing, you know, we had some survival stuff that began to kick in, right? Because like, uh, like a majority of us, right? We didn't have any power and we didn't have any water and we were left to try and kind of deal with it. But in that dealing with it, I found that I kind of went to a new level. In fact, my whole family, we went to a new level. New survival instincts began to keep in. I mean, kick in, you know, hey, house went down to like 40 degrees at night. It's cold. It got cold, you gotta do something. So I did, I did a few things I never thought I would do. I went and bought a tent for my living room. I bought a tent for my living room and put it in front of the fireplace. So, you know, the kind of the body heat thing, you know, I thought I was being clever. So I did that, I bought a tent. Then I went out into my backyard, my front yard, I'm shoveling snow. There's a reason I live in San Antonio, Texas, but I'm shoveling snow into a wheelbarrow and then wheelbarrowing it into my home and putting it in a bathtub so that I can flush the toilet later on. There's some things I did I never thought I would do. Guys, I was outside fashioning rain catches out of tarps to catch the water off the roof so that I could what? Flush the toilet. Again, hey, we were a regular Swiss family Robertson folks. I'm telling you, I mean, we were, it didn't work. It was the delivery. It was, it was the delivery that time. I should, next time, maybe next service. I'll, I don't know, the Swiss family Robertson thing. You got, I don't know. Maybe the first service, older crowd. I don't know. I don't. So look, when the power rolled back on, we were hopeful. How many of you were like that? power rolls back on, you're like, hope begins to creep to the surface, new optimism begins to flood in. We made it, we did it, and this has happened, you know. But about midway through dinner, the sun begins to go down and then all of a sudden, boom, you know. Everything kicks off. And all we're left with is a pathetic lantern in the center of the table, right? I got some, some headlamps, you know, they were annoying. But, uh, but I look up at my wife, after the power goes off, and it was just, the, she, she had tears in her eyes. She had tears in her eyes. And I said, baby, what's going on? Are you okay? And she said, she said, Matt, the dark, it's just so dark. And it just feels like you can feel it. It just feels different. And maybe you experienced that as well. But as I was reflecting on this message and this moment that I would be with you, that whole circumstance, the situation came flooding back to me. The dark just feels so dark. You know, the disciples and Jesus, they, they must have had a very similar conversation over their final meal together, their, their dinner together that night, the Passover meal, right? The tone of that night was, hey guys, things are about to change. In fact, the person who had betrayed Jesus had already set things into motion to some degree, right? Backroom deals were already being hatched. You know, this thing is going to change. The sun was setting on that whole moment between the Jesus and his disciples. After the meal, they would step out into the darkness and make their way through the city. Outside the city, they would cross 
through the Valley of Kidron and, and then across the brook there and they would make their way to the Mount of Olives and finally to the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, their conversation would have certainly added to the heaviness of the hour because Jesus would look at his disciples and, and, and he would say, hey, all of you are, are gonna fall away on account of me. You're all you're all gonna fall away. You're all gonna run away because you know it's been prophesied in Zechariah that, hey, you strike the shepherd and the sheep are gonna run. And so you're gonna run away. And so that would have certainly added to the tone of the Garden of Gethsemane. But today I want us to pick up in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. That will be our main text today. This is God's word. And so I hope you brought it with you. I hope you brought it with you and I hope you'll read along as I read aloud. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36, Garden of Gethsemane. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to his disciples. He found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, you know, could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and he prayed saying, oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me, unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again and prayed the third time again, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples. He said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the son of the hours at hand, the son of man is gonna be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word. And we're gonna use it today as a foundation to draw some very key observations for us as it relates to the Garden of Gethsemane. You know that word or that name Gethsemane literally means the oil press. It literally means the oil press. In fact, they would take a huge circular rock Think Flintstone's old school vehicle, right? They would take a wheel made of stone, literally called a crushing stone, and they would go over the olives. Obviously, what would happen is the oil would be squeezed out of the olives and it would be caught in a reservoir. Somebody needs to know today that there's a purpose in the press. There's a purpose in the press. In fact, actually, it's in the context of the oil press that we're gonna make three observations today from those, those before moments, right? The moments leading up to the cross, essentially the crossroads before the cross. We're gonna look at that today. Many people would point to Golgotha, right? And they would say Golgotha is, is where the victory was won. And they're not wrong. And they would at the same time, maybe point to the empty tomb and they would say, hey, the empty tomb, that's the sign of our victory. And that's also certainly true, but you cannot minimize the work that was being done in the garden of Gethsemane. And I want us to focus on that today. I want us to key in on what we can learn, discovering purpose from the press. We're gonna look at three things today. We're gonna look at how it feeds our formation, how it fortifies our faith and how it provides footholds 
for the future. But first let's look at how it feeds our formation. You see, it was in the garden of Gethsemane that Jesus takes his disciples back to the original problem that began in the garden of Eden. He comes to his disciple and he says, hey, look guys, you've got to pray. You need to pray. Why? Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that highlights the truth for us. Moments of great trial, moments of great pressure, they often reveal how disconnected our flesh can be from our spirit, don't they? Paul in Romans chapter seven, he highlights this idea when he says, look, hey, the things I wanna do, I don't do. And the things I don't wanna do, I find myself doing. Who will save me from this body of death? How many of you know Paul knew he needed a savior? Do you know you need a savior today? Well, let's consider the apostle Peter. The apostle Peter on his way to the garden that night, right? It was there in that moment when he resists Jesus' accusation. I don't have it in me to deny you, Lord. And Jesus turns to him and in that moment unpacks all of his weakness, all of his future treachery right in front of the disciples. You will deny me three times, Peter. So Peter's kind of in the garden and he's left to wrestle with the implications of that statement. Do I have it in me to deny my Lord? Is my flesh really not in alignment with my spirit and what the spirit desires? I mean, I, I can relate to it. Maybe you can relate to it. Why, why did I talk to my wife that way? I, I shouldn't have said it that way. Oh man, why was I so quick to be angry with that driver? Well, 1604. <laughs> or on Bandera or on, you know. Why can I be so distrusting? Why can I be so distrusting of people, right? Why, why do I get so anxious when I can't see around the next bend, you know? Why do I get so worried or worked up? Why don't I tell others about Jesus more, you know? Why, why don't I do that? See, the Spirit is constantly calling to me. Listen, Matt, hey, Matt, I want you to be not conformed to the pattern of this world, but rather I want you to be transformed. I want you to look a lot more like me. Spirit's calling me to be more like Jesus. But here's the hope, right? Jesus is always in the way, working to make a way back to the Father, isn't he? In fact, if we go back to the garden, you know, come on, you know that he had Peter on his mind. He had Peter on his mind in the garden when he's wrestling with this moment. He, he, was, he was essentially saying to Peter, right? Peter, I'm making a way. He had to be thinking about the apostle Paul even then, right? Hey, Paul, don't worry, I'm making a way. He had you on his mind. I'm making a way. I mean, come on, to all the doubters, the, those without hope, right? Those who are addicted, you know? Hey, guys, I am making a way. I really am. All the sick, all the broken. It was after the resurrection when Jesus seeks Peter out to restore Peter, right? Time to make the cruel constructive. And Jesus looks into the eyes of Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And you know, three times Peter was able to look at Jesus and say, you know, I do. 
And that was such an important moment for Peter because it was in that moment when he was able to witness his flesh come under the authority and the submission of the Holy Spirit's work in his life when everything came into the alignment like it needed to, when all of a sudden, hey, everything that he had ever thought about himself came into the right standing under the authority of the Holy Spirit in his life. Essentially, hey, Peter, you've thought of yourself as a denier, but I look at you today and I call you devoted. Peter, when you've looked at your life, all you've ever seen is rubble, but today I call you rock. But what about you? What's being formed in you? You know, God wants to use the pressure. He wants to use the pressure from your press to form something new in you. I'm reminded of a story, Christian author and famous pastor, E. Stanley Jones, he, he writes a story, Christ and the Human Suffering, about the guitar string or the violin string, right? You know, it's, you know, people might walk by if it's lying on a table and they might look at that string and go, oh, that's a violin string, but it's, it's lying on the table. It's, it's free, right? It's, it's, it's not bound by anything, right? It's just, just laying there. Finally, it's free. But he offers the question, he, said, he says, is the mute thing really free? In other words, what, is it doing what it was really ever intended to do just by lying there on the table? But he offers that if you take this same string and you put it, you string it up into a violin like so, I gotta be careful, I don't wanna break anything. If I break anything, I am gonna be in trouble. Who's gonna back me? Somebody out there back me if I break something? If you, take this, if you take this string right here and you string it up into this violin, you just put, you put it in there, you start to pluck at the strings. Oh, hi, Raf. Just wanted to borrow your violin for a second. But you, you just put it in here, you start to pluck at the string. What's it gonna do? It's gonna make some sound, right? It makes some sound, maybe not a great sound, but it begins to make a sound when it's in place. But if you take the string and you continue to stretch on that string and you bring it to what musicians call key, you bring it up to key and then you take the same violin and you give it to somebody who knows how to play it. It's amazing what this string will do now. worthy. But the amazing thing about that is that the tension causes the string to come into its identity. But it's, it's the tension it, that allows it to serve as it was intended to serve. And, and I want you to see today is that God is not the author of your pain. Or he may certainly not be the author of your pain, but he certainly wants to be a partner with you in the pain because he's working with you. He's, he's working with you to form you into the image of his son. Okay, so we've, we're learning about the press and there's some purpose in it for us, right? The first thing we learned is that it feeds our formation. And the second thing we're gonna learn today is that it fortifies our faith. I, a lot of thanks to the gospel writers and the Holy Spirit, right? That we get an opportunity to be kind of 
in the garden with Jesus. And we get to participate in this very desperate dialogue between son and father. It's a very, actually a very intimate moment because the crowds are all gone. We already know the disciples, they're, they're asleep and they're, they're gonna leave him anyway, right? And so at this moment, it really was just the father and the son. When Jesus begins to come into full awareness of what the hours ahead are going to mean, what they're gonna cost his flesh, the pain and the agony. I certainly don't fault him for that because we know and we believe that he was both fully God and fully man, left to deal and to battle with the afflictions of our flesh, just like we are. And so I can't fault him for maybe wanting to find another way. And so we know the three times he asked the father, hey, look, hey, is there another way? If there's another way, please let that be. But every single time he followed up with this phrase, and it's just the most amazing reaction from Jesus. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What amazing faith. Jesus took the pain and all the uncertainty of that moment and he carries it with him into the garden. Leans into the father. In fact, three times he affirms his relationship. He says, oh, my father. Such an important and intimate moment between father and son. You know, there are a few moments that evoke a response from a father, from a parent, as much as when a child is in distress, when a child is in pain. Recently, my six-year-old was jumping from chair to chair in our dining room area. A lot of life happens there. And uh, he was jumping from chair to chair and he missed his landing and he slipped and he fell back. He hit his head on the back of the, ta on the table and then he flipped forward and hit his head on the floor too. And so it was, it was crazy. I wasn't there. I got the call. Wife was trying to be calm. She was being calm. I was freaking out. But she, she's like, the color's draining from Caleb's face. He's complaining that he can't see well. His vision is blurry. And he's, he's in the bathroom. He's throwing up right now. I said, I'm on my way. And so I get in the car. I'm headed home. I'm telling you what, I mean, something came over me. I got so angry. I got so mad on my way home. I was like, enemy, you're not you're not gonna have any victory here. I mean, I just got like, I started to cry out to the Lord. Maybe you've been there, you know, when, when life is so like crazy and like it was all falling in at once and I'm on my way home and I begin to scream at the top of my lungs. I begin to cry out to God and I begin to, hey, speak in tongues, calling fire down from heaven, protect my son. That's what dads do for their kids when they're in crisis. I get home and Christy met me at the house and I, I took him to the car and I, and I fastened him into the car and I pointed the car toward urgent care and we took off. Tell you what, longest 20 minutes of my life, every traffic signal was like an assignment from the enemy, come on. The unknown became unbearable. The whole world was operating in slow-mo. I mean, can't they, don't they understand my urgency right now? I mean, but as anxious as I was, the, the moment was like incredibly focusing. Nothing else mattered in that moment. Every single care was filtered down to this present moment. I was fully present and fully alert to the needs of my son. 
And it occurs to me that at that moment, I was both a father and a son. I was a father who would do absolutely anything for my child. And I was a son who was desperately reaching up to his father for resource, for strength, for just a little bit of faith. How many of you know God the Father was leaning forward that night? Just like I was. You think it was any different? God the Father leaning forward as God the Son was reaching up. The whole world, the whole world in that moment was focused on the faith of Christ. It all hung on the faith of Christ in that moment. I mean, even Christ, when he exited the garden that night, he was met with this army of people. There was well over 200 armed guards and soldiers that met a carpenter's son. And Jesus, he speaks to the crowd. He says, don't you know, I could have prayed. I could have prayed to my father and he would have rescued me. He would have sent 12 angels of legions or 12 legions of angels to rescue me. He would have done it. He could have done it. They could have said, forget this whole redemption thing, right? Hey, forget redeeming the world. Great idea, but no, not gonna happen, right? Last moment. But no, he didn't. Instead, we get a vision of Jesus who embraces the Father's will and everything that that meant in faith, in faith. And isn't that what John was referring to in 1 John chapter five when, when he says, look, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith, even our faith. But, but look, this is not a watered down kind of faith. It's not like a, hey, if you feel like it kind of faith, you know, like, hey, the culture says this thing. And I know Jesus said that thing, but that was so first century kind of thing. But it was a, it was a faith that said, not my will, but your will be done. That challenges us today, doesn't it? We don't often live like that today. Our society doesn't, I mean, if it doesn't feel good, don't do it. But here we get a picture of Jesus in the garden, in the press, when all the public opinion and the crowds and religion of that day all fades away as the author of life wrestles with his faith. But by the end of it, we don't get a picture of a restrained Jesus, but we get a picture of a Jesus who was resolved in his faith. So I've got to ask you today, how is your faith? Is your faith being strengthened and fortified by the will of the Father? Or have you fashioned your faith to look a little bit something more like you? Comfortable, whatever feels good, do it, whatever. There's a purpose in the press. It feeds our formation. It, it fortifies our faith, but, but the press also provides footholds for the future. My kids are bonkers for the crudes. Come on, somebody. Can I get a little bit of love for the crudes? Can I get some love for the crudes? I got you over there, Elliot and Nate. I know. Hey, they're bonkers for the crudes. They love that, that animated show by Pixar. You know, they got a couple of movies out, you know, but it follows this cave dwelling family, caveman family from all the way back in the day, right? 
And, uh, and they have to wrestle with all the different things that that, that world creates, like tar pits and, and dinosaurs and weird animals and, and lava flows and earthquakes, all that kind of stuff, you know, right? And the father, his name is Grug, right? He's voiced by Nicolas Cage. And so, you know, Grug, his biggest thing, his biggest thing on his mind is I'm gonna protect my family. I gotta protect my family. Everything inside the cave that he's created for his family is safe. Everything outside of the cave is bad and death, right? And he tells stories after stories after stories with his family. He looks, he says, hey guys, this is what happened to this family when they stepped out of the cave. They died, they died, right? Okay, well, enters the scene is this, this other guy, this other boy, one of the teenage girls from his family begins to get frustrated with the cave. She doesn't wanna live and be in the cave. And so she begins to wander away one day, right? away from her father's instruction, right? And so she gets wandering around and then all of a sudden she runs into another human and he's a teenage boy and his name is Guy. His name is Guy. Well, he's got a little bit of a different philosophy from, from the father, from the dad, right? In fact, his philosophy is, was told to him by his parents right before they died. But they said, look, guy, if you ever, if you ever wanna make it, if you wanna keep living, if you wanna thrive in this world, you cannot stay here. You, you gotta follow the light into tomorrow. You gotta follow the light into tomorrow. Essentially follow the sun, keep following the sun, keep following the sun. And so, and so that's how they, and it, it just the whole movie is pretty funny and how it brings up all this controversy between the, the two philosophies. One says, hey, stay in the cave. And the other one says, follow the light into tomorrow. And I don't know what it was, whether it was just my kids or, or the movie, we just kind of had an impact in my heart. But I had a moment where I thought, you know, maybe in a generic way, this highlights the tension of the garden. This garden is safe. This cave is safe, right? You know, but the way ahead, it's filled with like struggle. It's filled with pain. It's filled with all of these unknowables. But we have to notice how Jesus came out of the garden that night. He came to his disciples and he said to his disciples, rise, let us be going. Let us be going. And it occurs to me that many believers, if they're gonna lose their heart, they lose their heart in the press. They lose their heart when things go bad, when it goes south. But we cannot get stuck in Gethsemane. We cannot get stuck in the garden. You know, they could have just camped out there, right? And just, hey, let's just keep this the place of sorrow. Let's keep this the place of mourning, contemplation, and loneliness. And I don't want to be insensitive because there's definitely is a time for all of that. But what I love about what Jesus did is he didn't allow it to stay that way, but he also turned the garden into a place to move forward from. It's a place to move forward from. It's a place to go into the future. Jesus was turning this whole miserable thing into a triumph. He really was. Quite literally, he was the light leading them to tomorrow. In the moments following the garden, Jesus heals Malchus's ear. You remember one of his disciples gets real radical. I'm not gonna deny you, you know, and he, you know, I'm gonna cut off someone's ear to prove my devotion. Cuts off an ear and he heals Malchus's ear. He stands boldly before Pilate. He's mocked, he's ridiculed. He picks up his cross and ultimately dies. 
offer. He didn't just wander into that. He didn't just kind of flounder into his future. No, he marched toward it with great intention. Great intention. Remember in Matthew chapter 16, where when Jesus is first talking to his disciples about the kind of treatment he's gonna get, you know, hey, I'm gonna be betrayed into the hands of sinners. This is gonna happen to me. Peter said, no way, Lord. That's not gonna happen. You're not going that place. And then in Matthew chapter 17, it's interesting, a chapter later, they're at the Mount of Transfiguration. James, Peter, John are there. And Jesus turns into like a light bulb in front of all of them, right? It's just crazy. And Peter looks at Jesus and said, it's good for us to be here. It's good for us to be right here. And, and it's so predictable about Peter. And Peter's always trying to keep Jesus from moving forward. He was always trying to keep him right there. And, and Jesus saw beyond Peter's heart to the intent of the enemy. And the intent of the enemy was always to keep Jesus from moving forward. Don't move forward. And the intent of the enemy over your life is the same, to keep you from moving forward. We just, we can't stay in the garden. You can't stay in the garden. You've got to follow Jesus into the future. I came across a very curious illustration that just really hit home with me. Again, by author E. Stanley Jones. He, he says, you know, it's interesting about Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane is that he has a unique ability. He compared him to a flower. And uh, he said, you know, Jesus is like the flower that in the garden of Gethsemane can, can reach down his roots down deep into the dirt and the muck of the thing, everything that that dirt represents, right? I mean, nothing about this dirt is appealing to us. In fact, as humans, we really can't do much with this dirt and we spend most of our lives trying to keep this out of our house. Good luck. Good luck if you got kids, right? Not much useful to us, but we see a picture of Jesus in the garden stretching his roots down deep into the dirt and he's able to turn the whole miserable thing into a triumph out of all the dirt, the weight of the sin on his world, uh, the weight of the world on his shoulders, quite literally, right? All of heaven leaning forward and, and in that moment, he's able to turn it into this beautiful thing. This beautiful thing, he did it for you and he did it for me. Out of the dirt, he's able to create wonderful things. Some of you, you've disqualified yourself from that. You know, you, you don't know what I done. You don't know what she did to me. You don't know what he did to me. I don't, but I, I know he can make life out of dirt. I know he can do that. Well, you don't understand the pain I faced as a child. I don't, but I know that he said, behold, I make all things new. I don't, I don't know what you faced. I don't know the pain you're going through. You might say, hey, Matt, I have lost my way. I don't know my up from my down anymore. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. If you just trust me, 
What do you have to lose? What do you have to lose? Except that he might dig his roots down deep into the darkest recesses of your life and make something beautiful out of it. He can do it. He's done it for me. He can do it for you. Rise and let us be going. Let's not stay here. Let's move forward into tomorrow. Before Jesus stepped out into the darkness that night, him and his disciples, they sang a hymn. (laughs) Can you believe that? They sang a hymn. I've missed that every single time I've read the passage of scripture, but for whatever reason, I keyed in on that this time. They sang a hymn. Jesus sang a hymn with his disciples called the Halal after their dinner, as was customary. And then they stepped out into the darkness. But Jesus, with a song in his heart, marched alongside of his disciples toward the press that night. And it occurs to me that Jesus is still walking beside of his disciples as we head toward the press with a song in his heart. In fact, in John chapter 16, he said, he said, in the world, you're gonna have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Do you believe it? Do you believe that he's overcome the world? Do you believe he has the ability? purpose out of the press, feeds our formation, fortifies our faith, and provides footholds for the future.